Hello, everyone. What you just heard is a group of the smartest scientists and healthcare executives I know, all talking at the same time. Actually, we recorded each one of them individually for our upcoming series on new drugs, currently in development for pituitary and neuroendocrine diseases. I'm J.D. Fascinetti, and this is another exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. In today's podcast, the first in a series of eight on the ins and outs of drug development, we discuss the journey that a promising molecule takes to develop into a life-saving medication and the people that steer that rigorous work. How does a company go from a molecule to the actual medication? What are the steps? Who is involved? What are the processes and the barriers? And what does that process look like in real time? Thanks to a kind invitation from Dr. Scott Struthers, chairman of Crenetics Pharmaceuticals, and his team, Pituitary World News readers and listeners will get an unfettered look at a young company with very exciting prospects. Today, you will hear excerpts of my conversation with the very people doing the work. We'll discuss the opportunities and the challenges and the company's unique approach to drug development and commitment to understanding the patient's journey. And in the following weeks, you will hear my individual conversations with all the key players with in-depth interviews about each of their areas of expertise. When you walk into Crenetics, you immediately realize that their offices and their labs are under the same roof which is not really usual in the pharmaceutical business. I was immediately struck by the energy of the place, and while drug development is a very deliberate activity, organized in very strict stages and phases, at Crenetics, everyone appears to know what the other person is doing down the hall. You get that feeling just by walking around, observing, and chatting with people. This is J.D. Fascinetti, and he's with Pituitary World News. Oh, okay. Hi. What what are you working on? Uh, I'm working on a somatostatin assay where I'm screening compounds. Um, Right now, the cells that I am running are the rat somatostatin 5 and dog somatostatin 5. So we try to create our own in-house cell lines that express different species so we can tell their potency um, in those species before them an animal. Oh, cool. Great. So it's like a pre-tester, will this work mm-hmm. in an animal, so that the animal can tell us, will this work in humans? Yes. It's kind of to connect the um, results later when we do run them in the animals and if you can figure out what happened or why it didn't work, you can tell, oh, it's because it's not as potent in dog, because you can't use like the human number for everything. What's this instrument called? <laughs> this, is a, this is a pipette. Okay, pipette. Yeah, yeah. pipette. Looks like a lot different than the one that I had in college. Here's the way Dr. Chris Cook, medical director of endocrinology, described to me how Crenetics works during one of our talks. 
This is what I was saying is that one of the special things about Crenetics is that as much as we would like to stay there, there are these stages and that we're all siloed into these various functional roles, there's really a lot of crosstalk that happens throughout. And you've seen the lab here and you've seen that Discovery is in-house and that Alan and I then kind of take the molecule and bring it into humans. Mm -hmm. But it really is a collaboration with chemistry, biology, and the clinical side throughout all of the processes. And so on the discovery side of things, we have chemistry with Frank and biology with Steve. That are so when you say chemistry, that is, explain what that means. That is in <coughs> Petri dishes, that okay. is out of humans, that is in <coughs> test tubes and lab experiments to say, we have a receptor on a cell that we would like to target because we believe that that receptor is responsible for regulating some of the um, signaling that could be contributing to a disease state. So we have now a target that we're going after and there's a lot okay. of work that happens in a petri dish to say we're developing these new molecules. Do they even hit the target? Do they bind correctly? How closely do they bind? If they bind, are they actually turning the receptor off or are they just kind of hanging out there? A few years ago, we did a podcast with Dr. Struthers and we asked him how Crenetics got started. It's such a great story that I asked him again. There's a group of us that had worked together previously at another company, and we've been working in this space of uh, endocrinology and pituitary and, and uh, um, you know, the time was 2008, 2009, when the whole biotech community had melted down. Yeah. And, uh, but we wanted to do something new. It was a good time to start a company, it just was a bad time to try and finance a company. So we ended up financing it ourselves by not taking a salary and writing government grants and uh, literally a little bit of dumpster diving at other biotechs that were going out of uh, business. Pull up with a pickup and pick up the equipment that they didn't... Yeah, and if you look, uh, we try and remind people of that. If you look down the hall, you'll see some pictures from the old days. Oh, yeah, yeah. Literally, we, we filled pickup trucks or even rented a U-Haul with to go to a company that was, you know, shutting down and selling or giving away all their old stuff. Yeah. This is what I would call a classic garage startup story. And the last time we talked, we were, you know, we were in a, Kinetics was in a small building not too far away. There was about 20 of us. I had a creaky old used chair that I think you were we, commenting on. We talked on. about that then. We're lovingly known as the Squeaky Chair Podcast. Yes. Uh, so we did it over the phone. Right? Because that was a hand-me-down free chair I got from a company that <laughs> fell out of business. And uh, you know now we're at 65 people and growing, and a good chunk of these folks are, are working very hard on um, getting this acromegaly drug you know, through regulatory trials. Yeah, and that's, that's moving fairly expeditiously, no? It is. We've yeah. got centers now all around the world, everywhere from um, uh, Romania on the east side to Great Britain, you know, across Europe, across the U.S., Australia, New Zealand, Brazil, and uh, patients signing up for the trials and, uh, you know, trying to figure out if this drug works as well as we hope it does. As you see an enterprise grow in size and in knowledge, one of the most fascinating subjects we discuss was looking towards the future. Here are Dr. Struthers views and where he sees the company in five to ten years. So five to ten years I hope 808 is on the market and available all over the world. Um, we'll be selling it ourselves in the US 
hopefully parts of Europe, but we'll work with partners in Europe, in Asia, other parts of Europe. Mm -hmm. um, but there's more, so especially for the pituitary patients, the next, when the next drug's going into the clinic, is a very novel treatment for Cushing's disease. Yeah, I was reading about that. Yeah, tell me a little bit about that one. And up until now, we've never had a way to block ACTH. And so we've got the first ACTH antagonist that works great in rats. And, and uh, now we need to see if it works well in people. Yeah, and that's, that is moving to, to a trial phase then? Yeah, yeah sure. so it's in uh, what we call preclinical now. Yeah where we're making sure it's safe by everything we can do before we go into, into people. And then it'll go into a healthy volunteer study where we look at the ability of it to block the production of cortisol in volunteers. And then we'll go into Cushing's patients and see how well it works for them. So we're also interested in endocrine-related tumors because in reality, yeah. Cushing's and acromegaly are both caused by tumors. Yes. But there's also a set of tumors in the gut that secrete a variety of hormones called neuroendocrine tumors. Yes. Uh, that's like the one that killed Steve Jobs or more recently Aretha Franklin. Mm -hmm. And so we've got a program there. Yeah. Uh, and then we're also very excited about um, a program we've got for kids with what's called congenital hyperinsulinism. And that means they make too much insulin even when their blood sugar is low which drives them down to very low blood sugars. And if that's not managed 24-7, they can have uh, hypoglycemic yeah. shock or developmental disorders. Yeah. And the current treatments for that are so bad that many of these kids go on to have their pancreas taken out, and it gives them type 1 diabetes the rest of their life. Yeah. And we've got a very interesting molecule for that community uh, you know, with a very involved group of moms and dads uh, working to find better treatments for those kids. It is probably safe to say that both Dr. Struthers and Dr. Stephen Betts, Cronetic's co-founders, are as intimately familiar with somatostatin receptors as anyone in the planet. And in our discussion, we touch on many fascinating subjects, one of which was Dr. Betts' view on technology and the advances in drug discovery. Well, it, it, it's interesting because yeah. I, so I grew up, I've been doing this for 30 years now and there's there's always been every every few years in drug discovery there's been a new wave of this is the new technique that is going to solve drug discovery and when I was a young scientist it was structural biology then it became combinatorial chemistry then it became uh, genomics and proteomics and yeah. metabolomics and now people are looking at uh, gene therapy um, and you know none of these has been the panacea that their advocates have portrayed them as when they break onto the scene yeah but they're exciting new techniques and but they go into the toolbox and so every there's not going to be one technique that's going to solve every drug discovery problem but now there are a lot of techniques that you can assess to try and unravel a problem. And I think that's what makes this era of drug discovery so exciting. Here is some more of my talk with Dr. Betts. So it would be safe to assume that you know somatostatin and receptors, pituitary receptors, like the palm of your hand. Yeah, yeah. I, I think we we've spent a good decade or more. I mean, Scott Scott really does. I don't tell him this, but he probably knows more about them than anybody. 
Um, but I, I, I always try not to give them too many compliments. <laughs> Yeah. But, uh, you know, we have built a, a large um, community here where we understand the receptor family. We understand how molecules can bind to these receptors and activate them. Uh, and we can dictate the pharmacology. So if you wanted to hit SST2 selectively or SST5 selectively or 2 and 5 but not 3 and 4, we can... Uh, in the MedChem group, we can find molecules to do all those things. Um, I think the other thing that was, I think, pioneering for us was that somatostatin is a peptide and we don't make peptide drugs. So peptide drugs need to be injected to be so this delivered. this is like lanreotide or... Exactly. So the current ones, lanreotide, pasareotide, or octreotide, are all injectable uh, formulations, either they're uh, once daily injections or multiple times daily injections or um, depots that you would get once a month. And our idea was to make small molecules that you would keep in your medicine cabinet that you just take once a day when you get up in the morning and that's it. You don't need the injections. You don't need to schedule a clinic visit to go get a depot. And really, I think it'll improve patients' lives and it'll also improve um, there's a lot of variability with injections mm -hmm. in terms of the amount that gets on board each time a depot is given uh, and it changes over the course of the month. This should be a much more regular amount of therapeutic that's delivered daily. And so I think the response for most patients will be much less variable. And Can you actually see a receptor? under the microscope? Or is, it a, is it tissue? Is it a chemical reaction? What, what does it look like and what, how do you know that the compound that you're applying to mm -hmm. it is doing what it's supposed to do? So receptor biology is really fascinating yeah. and um, the, the structures of GPCRs, people knew that they were so there. GPCRs oh, I'm sorry, so GPCRs, which were all these endocrine receptors yeah. are, are G-protein coupled receptors. So okay. they are a class of receptors that evolved 500 million years ago uh, to transmit signals from one part of a, a organism to another part of an organism. And they have a um, conserved structure that um, goes across the membrane. So these structures are all very similar, but all very slightly different because they all have very different jobs. Mm -hmm. And what they do is their job is to translate a signal from outside the cell to inside the cell. So they have a really important gatekeeping um, job in every cell in your body, practically. Stay tuned for the complete interview with Dr. Stephen Betts, which will be published in the coming weeks. Here's another short segment where he discusses his views on the most important part of their work. I, I do think that translation from the lab to the animal is probably the most critical thing that we do. Um, because if it doesn't work in the animal, then we know we're doing something wrong in the lab and we have to go back and fix it. And is that where you spend most of your attention in that transition? Or yeah, yeah. Because I think the, yeah. you know, making an assay is pretty straightforward and making molecules is reasonably straightforward. But then demonstrating that they work in the way that you think they work yeah. is the most critical piece, I think, because then we know we can use that to find something that'll work in a yeah. patient. <laughs>
Dr. Stacy Markison is a senior director of pharmacology and toxicology. Her work in the development of a drug is critical to make sure a compound is safe before it moves to human studies. She walked us through the science, the chemistry, biology, and toxicology. Stacy talks at length about the discovery phase and the process of moving from discovery to development. Here's an excerpt from my conversation with Dr. Markison. So in discovery, there's a lot of cell-based assays. They're usually very high throughput, which means we can put lots of compounds through. So here, we're doing these kind of quick assays where we're putting lots of compounds through. Um, you know, you're only making the compounds in relatively small amounts because you're able to use cell assays. Um, and so the goal in discovery is to test as many molecules as you can in lots of different assays that are giving you a clue as to whether they have drug-like properties. Are they soluble enough? Do they, um, are they absorbed into the body the way we want them to be? Um, do they, um, how are they metabolized? Do they break down as you would expect? Mm -hmm. Do they not um, produce you know, strange metabolites? Um, how are they metabolized? What enzymes are used? These kinds of mm -hmm. things. Do they affect other receptors like um, the Herg receptor that we know is involved in the heart? We want to avoid um, molecules that have effects on yeah. receptors expressed in other parts of the body um, except for the intended effect. So we do all of those things um, with lots and lots of molecules. Then when we sort of nail it down to, let's say, a handful, sometimes, you know, a dozen, then we start doing more in-depth analysis. So putting them in vivo and asking, you know, are they having the effects in the, in the whole organism? And then putting them at higher doses, what, you know, are they toxic essentially? What kind of toxic effects do they have? So then we're testing, maybe now we have 12 molecules and there's, you know, two dozen, you know, properties that we're looking at essentially. And we'll meet as a group and we'll take these molecules, we'll look at all of them on all of these different characteristics, and then we'll decide which one is the best one. And when we decide we found the best one, then we, um, call it essentially a developmental candidate. And so it changes from discovery to a development candidate, and that's when we start doing the GLP talks work and it starts moving forward. Another key step or phase in the development of a new drug is what is called CMC, which stands for Chemistry, Manufacturing, and Control. Immediately after a drug comes out of discovery, Dr. Jerry Burke, Senior Director of CMC and his team, start their work. Nothing probably illustrates more the complexities of drug development than the work that Jerry does. So don't miss my whole interview with Dr. Burke coming up in the next few weeks. But here's a taste of what we talked about. So there are a lot of roles within CMC. Uh, the first being we have to take the drug molecule that comes out of discovery and we have to have a good synthetic process to be able to make the API, the active pharmaceutical ingredient, repeatedly from batch to batch. So there's a lot of work 
throughout the life cycle of the development that we keep making process improvements so we can make the API as quickly as we can and as cheaply as we can. So my role oversees all activities of CMC. So it's making sure that the process chemistry and the amount of API that we have is available, that the analytical work that's done to support all that is in place. Mm -hmm. I'm then responsible to, for all the drug product development and manufacture of the clinical supplies and all the testing, the analytical work that goes on behind it to make sure that that all meets specifications. And then the last piece is the clinical supply and distribution to make sure that our clinical packaging group is putting the right labels on it, it's going to particular depots throughout the world, and then from those depots it's going to the clinical sites to get to the patients. This is Dr. Alan Krasner, Chief Medical Officer. We are in charge of everything to do with clinical trials of new drug candidates. So what we uh, are primarily uh, responsible for is testing new drug candidates when they're known to be safe enough to test in human beings. Um, usually the first kinds of studies uh, we conduct are called phase one studies. This is when um, our colleagues uh, in various disciplines have tested a new chemical in many different ways prior to us beginning the tests in patients. Uh, of course, most of the testing that's done prior to clinical testing is safety testing in animals and also in petri dishes, in vitro tests are very important. But they also evaluate, does this chemical do what we want it to do in the biological systems in the laboratory to achieve what we want it to achieve in, in patients someday? So there's a lot of laboratory testing that goes into saying this new chemical we've discovered is actually a candidate to be tested in patients as a potential new drug. We asked uh, Dr. Alan Krasner and Dr. Chris Cook, whom we met earlier in the podcast, about their work on their current trials, particularly CR00808, which is the acromegaly drug currently in phase two, and also about the pediatric congenital hyperinsulinism project. They talked at length about the phases in the clinical trials and the outlooks and challenges for these drugs. Here's Dr. Cook talking about the acromegaly trial currently underway. So with the SST2 um, compound in particular, that's our 808, we then tested that in healthy volunteers, again, for safety um, and tolerability, but then also to see, importantly, because we're thinking acromegaly, can we turn off growth hormone signaling at um, and the production of a biomarker called um, insulin-like growth factor mm -hmm. one, which contributes to acromegaly. So that was done in healthy volunteers um, in a single ascending dose study where we looked at just a single dose, and then also in a multiple ascending dose study, seeing giving it 10 days to um, healthy humans, can we suppress levels of IGF-1? We found great data, and that allowed us then to say, okay, now we can, with this, have confidence we can go into patients with acromegaly to see if we and can that treat would, this. And that's what differentiates stage one from stage two. 
so CRN0088 yeah. is a small molecule non-peptide uh, somatostatin receptor agonist. Um, so um, as you know, the treatments for acromegaly uh, that are out there already include octreotide and lanreotide. Mm -hmm. These are both peptide somatostatin agonists. They work by stimulating to the somatostatin receptor on the pituitary tumor cell and that causes the cell to secrete less growth hormone and that helps ameliorate acromegaly. Mm -hmm. This compound we're, we're developing, um, it works in the same way, although it is not a peptide, therefore it is uh, able to be taken by mouth as a pill once a day. Mm -hmm. The octreotide and lanreotide have to be injected. Uh, typically, most patients use these large, large monthly injections, uh, which are painful for many people and also uh, can really impair patients' quality of life. We do believe uh, patients would, uh, a lot of patients would benefit from having an oral alternative to this, and that's what 808 represents, a possible oral alternative. Here's a little more about our discussion on the acromegaly drug. What does a phase three study look like? Let's say for a CRN0088. Well, we don't know no, yet. No, you don't know yet. Okay, that's fine. But <laughs> I can tell you a typical phase three study yeah. would involve tip, uh, larger numbers of patients. For a rare disease, that would be typically in the hundreds rather than the tens of patients, um, depending on how rare the disease is. Um, and it would uh, generally involve several months of treatment and generally involve a control group like patients yes. treated with either placebo or with an active control. So like the octreotide. famous double-blind placebo. Double-blind placebo-controlled <laughs> or active-controlled yeah. trial. Yeah. And you would have to have enough patients to show a statistical benefit of some kind. Can you get a sense that this is, and with, with your experience, that this is a drug that actually has a very good chance of su succeeding, or is it not even possible for you to do that until you go through the... I think there's there's two layers to that question. One is, you know, the first question and most direct is that we do have to wait for some of our phase two data. And you mentioned the double blind. And so one of our phase um, two trials is absolutely blinded. And we will mm -hmm. not know the answer to whether our drug is effective in these subjects until the end of the trial, until we have that data locked and kind of reported to us to be able to look at because we are blinded mm -hmm. as the sponsors. But the other question, the other answer to that is looking at, from a clinician standpoint, the unmet medical need in this disease space. And we told you about the octreotide that's long acting, the yeah. lanreotide that are out there on the market, but I don't think it, it should not be um, underestimated the burden that those drugs put on the patient. There are injections that are monthly, that are painful, and also have to be administered by a um, a clinician Clean. or a site, yeah. so they have to actually travel to get these painful injections. Mm -hmm. And even with that, these are not 100% effective in 100% of the patients. And so as far as looking at the potential for our drug to be better in terms of not only effectiveness, but also the burden on the patient, we absolutely believe that there's space there. This is an oral drug, which is gonna be huge in terms of quality of life. Yeah. And then we have a significant amount of robust preclinical and also phase one data that gives us a lot of confidence that our phase two program is is going to turn out with really with well. some great results. Yeah. yeah. Well, I hope it does. 
We will publish our discussion with Drs. Krasner and Cook in its entirety, where you can hear more about the acromegaly, Cushing's, and the pediatric hyperinsulinism drug. That is coming up in a few weeks, so stay tuned. Also, later this week, look for the next uh, podcast of this series, where we will discuss what it takes to market a new drug and to manage the marketing and business strategy of a growing drug developing company. We will be talking with Gina Ford, Vice President of Corporate Strategy and Commercial Planning, and Stephanie Kelly, Director of Patient Advocacy. The last section of this podcast is on the regulatory environment. We discuss the current process for new drugs, the FDA, which regulates development in the U.S., and the EMA, which is the European Regulatory Agency, and the opportunities and changes that are happening in the rare disease space, both in the U.S. and Europe. We talked to Michael Monaghan, Senior Director, and Debbie Comendez, Manager of Regulatory Affairs and Operations. Here's some of our discussion. The Regulatory Affairs Department, primarily, we are the interface between the company, the sponsors that conduct clinical trials, and the regulated health authorities. And those are either the FDA, in the case of the US, or EMA, European Medicines Agency in Europe, or uh, even local regulatory authorities. And we would consider ethics committees to be uh, regulatory bodies that have uh, some uh, piece to the process for an approval and conduct and oversight of a clinical trial. So we're that primary interface between those bodies. The second thing is that we are experts in the laws, regulations, guidelines, and best practices for conducting clinical trials. And we advise the organization on um, current industry standards. And we also make sure that where's that red line uh, when you know something is coming up to there and saying, look, we can't do this or that. Um, that's uh, uh, a law that we have to stop. Um, we're that... Uh, organization that, that can hold up the red flag at that point. So you work equally with the FDA and with the EMA. Are, you, are, the, are the drugs developed at the same time in Europe and in the U.S.? They just say this new CRN00808. Mm-hmm. It, it has a track in the U.S. and a track in Europe. Yes. In this day and age, you cannot feasibly conduct clinical studies in just the U.S., Uh, And nor do we want to. No, sure. Um, We want to have as broad an access uh, to therapies that we develop to uh, as many people as can benefit. And um, from a clinical trial perspective, recruiting in just the U.S. is extraordinarily difficult. Mm -hmm. So we have to go out globally, find investigators, find sites, and find patients to participate in these trials. And the European environment is, um, is a great place to do that. One, because they are um, very aligned in many aspects with the US regulations and the FDA. And two, the, the patient population in terms of uh, the indications and medical practice are aligned very well with uh, the US here. So all of our studies that, that we conduct as an industry are going to be global studies. And in the end, that helps us with our um, end goals of one, regulatory approval globally, 
um, because it's much easier when a European authority is looking at an application and they see that, hey, look, 50% of the studies were, were uh, conducted here in, in our territories. Yeah. Um, but two, once you get approval, that patient access um, globally to as sure. broad as, uh, as we can get. So the perception out there, and it may, may be, be totally untrue, is that the European organizations are a little more lenient or um, uh, different. Uh, are you? Do you how, is, how does that work? Is it? Is it? For example, is it? Is it easier for a study to happen in Europe than it is in the U.S.? I think it depends on what criteria you're thinking about. Um, well, it's just maybe just a perception. Yeah, yeah. I think logistically, from a regulatory perspective, it can be more complicated. Um, to conduct your clinical trial because you have to go to every single country individually. There's a separate clinical trial application mm -hmm. um, bef that you need to get approved before you can start yeah. um, start your study. Well, I'm asking because the perception maybe in the patient community is that the Europeans are f faster at uh, or getting drugs to the market. There are mm -hmm. more drugs and maybe for some, maybe this is not correct. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I'm just asking you to... If, if, if you see it in the work that you do? I, I would say that that perception is, is not correct. Okay. Um, the, the U.S. Like many perceptions, right? right? It, yes, <laughs> it, it is. Um, and, and of course there's exemptions to, uh, and exceptions to any kind of uh, issue that we're talking about. But for the most part, uh, the U.S. regulatory environment um, is at this point very pro-therapy. Uh, and this is a pendulum that swings back and forth over the years. Uh, but right now, we have um, a, a great working relationships with the FDA. And as you can see from last year with the number of therapies approved, um, there's, a, there's a, a favorable environment for getting treatments approved. Sure, and, and but in rare diseases. In yeah. rare disease, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. In, in Europe, um, I would say that the European authorities have the same rigorous standards. Um, they may have different uh, focus. Oftentimes, they are looking at uh, what the therapy is compared to the current standard of care, whereas the FDA may often look at your drug um, uh, solely on its own merit. So there's a, sometimes a different perspective, but from a regulatory uh, point of view, the, the same rigorous standards mm -hmm. apply. Overall, though, if we're looking, say, just at, um, say, market application review times, the FDA uh, beats Europe in almost every instance. Mm -hmm. This was a truly fascinating discussion with Debbie and Michael about regulations, opportunities, and challenges for new drugs. Don't miss an entire podcast coming up very soon. You have been listening to an exclusive podcast from Pituitary World News. This is Corky Fascinetti. Thank you for listening.